We're going to begin the good news tonight. We have been, for some months, exploring the bad news in some detail. And tonight, we begin the good news. We begin to explore and get visibility of God's great solution to man's dilemma. As you remember from midway in the first chapter, the 18th verse of the first chapter, clear through the, uh, the 20th verse of the third chapter. Paul had set forth that God's wrath was being revealed, that men are under condemnation and judgment. Paul had left us at the juncture where, where we find ourselves in the, now at the 21st verse. He's left us off at the 20th verse, man really in a hopeless condition, in a hopeless situation. Man with no place to turn, he's, he has no avenue whereby he can commend himself to God on his own. The very law that he thought he could keep to earn salvation or earn heaven, Paul goes on to tell, only condemns man. He says it's by the law or through the law that man becomes conscious of sin. And so as we move into the 21st verse and on into these next, this next section, indeed the whole rest of the book of Romans, we find Paul setting forth now for us in great detail the good news of Jesus Christ, the solution to man's dilemma, that there is some hope. And I've titled this message, uh, How to Be Right with God. Now, you, most of us are aware that it's through Jesus, but I think there's some some fuzziness, some fogginess in our thinking about righteousness and, and how we're made righteous and how God gives us Jesus' righteousness. I want to talk about that some tonight. I think it's important for us to understand it so we can effectively explain it to other people. What God does, how he makes us righteous. I want us to turn as we start, back to uh, the book of Job, if you would, the ninth chapter of Job. What page? Well, let me find it. <laughs> let me find it, and I'll tell you here. You guys are getting real smart. <laughs> All right. Job, the ninth chapter, 521. Thank you. How to get right with God? Job asks this same question in the ninth chapter. And incidentally, if you've never read Job, you ought to read it. It is absolutely just a blessing of a book. God reveals so much to us through that book and through Job's life and through the things that his very caring friends share with him. But I want you to read with me from verse 2 in Job. It says, Indeed, Job saying, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? He asked this question, How can a man be righteous before God? That's the same question that Paul leaves us with at the 20th verse of the third chapter of Romans. That man doesn't seem to have any hope. He's in the dark. He's lost. It's hopeless. 
that he's under judgment with God, that he's on his way to hell. And Job asked this same question. How can a man be righteous before God? And he goes on and he describes God as he understands him. And then you'll see how he can ask that question. Because he sees this great gulf between who he is and what he is and who and what God is. He says, how can a mere mortal, how can someone like me ever hope to have a relationship with someone like him? Listen to how he describes God. He says, though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be numbered. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. You see, Job asked that great question. He saw God as a great and a powerful and a mighty person. And he saw himself as, by comparison, as grossly insignificant. He said, how can a mere man, how can a mere mortal be righteous with him or be righteous before him or have relationship with him? How can I get an audience with him? How can I be right with him? Job asked these questions. We asked those questions. Indeed, that's the question that men have asked since the beginning. How can a man be right with God? In our text tonight, verse 21 and 22, answers that question. Can a man be right with God? Yes. Yes, he can. And Paul is going to tell us how. As I said earlier, he left us in verse 20. Alone 
in the dark. Man had no hope. He had no place to turn. And that's how all men feel. All men ask that question. How can they have a relationship with God? You know that that's the very reason that religion exists, to answer that question. Religion exists to help men find a way to be right with the God that they perceive to be God. There's no other reason for religion. No other reason at all. How else can a man escape his sense of of emptiness, his sense of loneliness, his sense, sense of meaninglessness, his sense of just co- being cosmically alone, unless there's a God, unless there's somebody there. I'm constantly amazed that when people tell me they don't believe in a God, when, we, when you press them, why, why? What do you do about your sense of if there's no God, there's nothing there's no security. There's nothing to add life to, meaning to your life. They have no answer. They can't deal with that. But religion exists to help men deal with those very real issues. You cannot hide from those very long. Everybody wants to believe that there's somebody out there in control. Everybody wants to believe that they're on the right side of that somebody. How else do we, we deal with our fear of death? How else can we deal with the, the fear of judgment? Everybody has a sense of right and wrong, don't they? Everybody knows when they've done wrong. And when they've done wrong, they know that there is some impending judgment, somebody is going to stand in judgment of that. And hence, men men have come up with religions. And all the religions of the world propose an answer to that one question, how can a man be right with God? Every religion in the world provides an answer. And every religion is the same except one. Because as you examine every other faith, every other religion, every other belief system, they all say that you can be right with your God if you do such and 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 such. They are the religions of human achievement. There's only one religion that's different. This is what's so astonishing about Christianity. When you stand up, stand Christianity up against all the other religions of the world, it is not the same. Because Christianity is the only religion, it too offers a solution. It too answers the question, of can our man be right with God, but the solution and the answer that Christianity offers is not on the basis of human achievement, it's on the basis of divine achievement. That God has done it. 
If a man is to be right with God, it doesn't begin with men, it begins with him. It has to happen at God's end, not man's. And yet every other religion tells you, if you study it, if you explore it, that you've got to undergo certain rituals, that you've got to do certain things, that you've got to be involved in this or that or the other thing. Traditions and all sorts of rites and, and uh, all manner of things. Because it's a matter of you making yourself right with God. Not so with Christianity. Christianity is the only system that's different. Because it starts with God. It's a religion of divine achievement, not human achievement. Isn't that exciting? If you don't get anything out of tonight, get that out of tonight. Because when you witness and you testify to people, and they say all religions are the same, you say they are not the same. Because of that very same point. Because of that very same point. Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's not just a teaching. Christianity arose out of and is based on historical fact. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And without that, you have no Christianity. It's based on fact. It's not just a teaching. It's a, for, it's a telling of the facts. Christianity says, this is what happened, and this is why it happened, and this is what can happen to you. Because of the facts. No other philosophy, no other religion has a basis of the facts, like Christianity does. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting to know that you haven't made a mistake? Then when those little doubts creep in, you say, oh man, am I in the right place? You know, I got a letter this week from a guy who just broke my heart. He'd been coming here for a year and a half, he told me in this letter. He didn't sign his name, unfortunately. And I very rarely ever, if ever, read mail that's not signed. So if you write me a letter, sign your name. But this one snuck past me. And he said, you know, I've been coming to this church for a year and a half. I've been, I've been in Christianity for a year and a half. I, I've been trying to make it work. I've been looking for God to do this in my life and that in my life. And he's not been there. There's been no difference. And so I'm resigning. I said, how sad. He said, there's no difference. I wanted to say, well, where were you? What were you looking for? Were you looking at Jesus? Were you focused on Jesus, or were you just in it for what you could get out of it? Broke my heart. Who knows where the guy is? I just prayed for him today like crazy and asked the Lord to restore him and speak to his heart. There is no other way. There is no other answer. There is no other hope except that God has given us hope. And Paul is going to show us that very clearly in these next passages. Look what he says in verse 21. The first two words. 
Men are lost, they're in the dark, there's no hope. And then in verse 21, he says what? But now, but now. Oh, those are exciting words. You get the picture of then and now. Then there was no hope, but now there is hope. Then there was no way. Men were in the dark, but now the dawn has come. The light has broken through. Then was bad news, now is good news. He says, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, he says, has been made known to which the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, testifies. And he said, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's the solution. There it is. There's the gospel right there in a nutshell. Man is condemned. He's a sinner. There's absolutely no possible way that he can accredit himself to God based on his own efforts. Paul has spent three chapters proving that to us, convincing us. And then he says, but now, a righteousness from God. But now, it's God to the rescue. Isn't that exciting? Can you picture this? Here we are in an impossible situation. Here we are, our back's up against the wall. The snake's getting ready to gobble us up. Do you remember the old cowboy movies, you know? I mean, when the hero was, it was all over. Right? The Indians were closing in, and they were going to get all killed, and man, you hear, and you look off, and here comes the cavalry charging in to rescue them, right? It's God to the rescue, but now it's God to the rescue. He looks down, and he sees men in an in a impossible situation. And God comes to man's rescue. God comes to man's rescue. Man can't get out of it. He's lost. He's in an impossible situation. Paul says that they've all turned away. There's no one who understands. No one who is righteous. No one who does good. They're lost. But now, is God to the rescue. Oh, I love it. As I was reading and studying for this message these last couple of weeks, I read of the Roman poet Horace. Some of you may have read some of his poetry in school and so forth. He wrote a criticism, a critique, actually some guidelines for the Roman poets of his day. And these guys were fond of writing tragedies in which they would, they would find the, or leave the, the hero or the heroine in an absolute impossible situation. The, the plots would be so complex to their tragedies that they would have to bring a god in onto the stage to save the hero or the heroine. And Horace, in his, in his guidelines, in his criticism of these Roman poets, would say, he says, look it. This is a paraphrase. I can't quote him exactly. He says, look at guys. If you're going to bring a god on the stage, then you better make sure that it's a situation worthy of a god. 
Now, excitingly, Luther, Martin Luther, picked up on what Horace wrote. And he seized on that one comment, that one statement, and he said, he said, God, bring God on the stage for the impossible situation of men in sin. That's the only situation in which man can be saved. You bring God on the stage. God intervenes in human history. God is to the rescue, just like the Calvary would come and rescue the, uh, the poor settlers from the Indians raiding on them. Isn't that exciting? God to the rescue. I love that. He says, but this is a righteousness from God. That's what it means, God's to the rescue. We don't generate our own righteousness. What is righteousness? Being right. Being whole. Being pure. Being perfect. Being together. Being everything that God intends us to be. And we can't do it on our own. We've tried, haven't we? It ain't happening, is it, on our own? And so Paul says, but now a righteousness from God. This is something that, that God has created. This is something that's part of him that he's given to men. The Bible teaches us over and over that God is righteousness. One of his attributes, one of his qualities, his nature. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is pure. There is no iniquity found in him. No sin, no fallenness, no mar, no flaw in God's nature. He is righteousness to the max. Would you agree with me? Yes. All right. Now, if he is righteousness to the max, then he must surround himself with righteousness. Everything that he has to do with has to be righteous. There can be nothing contrary to his nature that he's in relationship with. That's why the Father turned away from Jesus on the cross. The Bible says in several places that Jesus was made sin, took our sin upon him, God transferred our sin upon him and made him sin, and then he had to turn his back on his own son. He couldn't have a relationship with him. Isn't that awesome? But because God must surround himself and must affiliate with everything that's righteous, he therefore demands righteousness. He demands righteousness of everything and every being that he's in relationship with. God is righteousness. He demands righteousness. Because he demands it, and we can't generate it on our own, you and I can't generate perfection. We can't make ourselves perfect. We can't. Because we're by nature imperfect. We're by nature sinful. We're by nature diseased. We're by nature twisted. Because we can't do it on our own. God, this amazes me, out of his incredible love, gives us his righteousness. Gives it to us. A righteousness from God 
apart from the law. That means apart from any effort on our own part to attain it. Apart from any effort on our own part to earn it. Apart from any effort on our part to even deserve it. This is a free gift from God. His righteousness. His righteousness. There's an interesting parable. I want you to turn to it with me in Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Page 1010. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Listen to this. This is exciting because it has bearing on what we're talking about. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Now, if you study this, this uh, parable, you know, of course, that the, it's a picture of God sending John the Baptist, sending the prophet, sending his son Jesus himself to invite Israel to the wedding banquet, that it's all ready. But, of course, they refused. Verse 5 says, They paid no attention and went off, one to his field and another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. That may be an allusion to what will happen to Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. when it was destroyed. Verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come the Jews, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Now the Gentiles are invited. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now an oriental custom... It was an oriental custom for a king who put on a wedding feast to provide for all the guests the appropriate wedding garments. You didn't wear your own clothes. You didn't bring your own wedding garments to attend this wedding feast when a king put on a wedding. The king himself provided the garments that you were to wear to the wedding feast. Now look at The king comes in, he notices a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He was not wearing the garments that the king had provided. You see the parallel? Righteousness. God has provided the robes. God has provided the robes of righteousness by which we enter into the kingdom, by which we enter into the wedding feast, by which we enter into relationship with him. We must wear his robes, not our own robes, not our own righteousness. And indeed, it would be known that there would be people who would attend the wedding feast and who would go out and expend elaborate sums of money on their own garments. 
sometimes even more elaborate than the king would provide for the rest of his guests. And this person would come to the banquet arrayed in his own garments. And he would be thrown out because he was supposed to wear the garments the king provided. And Jesus draws on this oriental custom that's well known. And he uses it to illustrate a a principle, the very principle we're talking about. The king turns to this man. Friend, he asked. Look how he addresses him. Friend. He gives him the benefit of the doubt. He gives him an opportunity to take off his garments and put on the righteous garments. He says, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was what? Speechless. What did Paul say at the, uh, in the uh, 19th verse of the third chapter of Romans? The law, what does the law say? It says to, every, it says to all those who are under the law that, the, that every mouth may be what? Silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. Here we have a situation, a picture of the king coming and saying, Sir, how did you get in here without wedding garments? And the man was speechless. There is nothing he could say. A picture of one who is trying to attain to the necessary righteousness by his own garments, by his own efforts. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's lost. Any person who arrives and they're not clothed in the righteousness that God provides as a free gift is lost forever. We confuse very often and lose sight of what it means to be saved by faith. What it means to to have God give us righteousness. And very often, because we're in such a habit, just in our own temporal relationships, of earning approval from one another, we fall into the same traps of earning approval from God. Do you find yourself doing that? Performing for God to earn his approval? And then when you don't meet the standard, you're all bummed? Sure. You see how important it is to understand and to keep right in front of your face. It's not my righteousness. I don't deserve it. It's a righteousness that God has given to me. It's apart from the law, from any efforts that I put in. What does it mean to be apart from the law? Does that mean that God did away with the law? No. I think a lot of people mistake that too. They think, well, you know, there's no more law. I'm saved by grace. I'm under grace. I'm no longer under, under law. When Paul writes in the sixth chapter of Romans that we are under grace, we're not under the law, he means that we're under God's free gift of salvation. He means that we're justified by faith. Not being under law means that we're not under the principle of having to justify ourselves anymore. 
having to prove ourselves righteous. God hasn't done away with the law. The law still stands. It's still the standard. But we've been given a righteousness now that enables us to keep the law. Isn't that exciting? God has made us new. He's caused us to be born again. He's given us a brand new nature. He's given us perfection. He's clothed us in the robes of righteousness. You know, the, remember the old saying, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder? About how God beholds us. God beholds us as being beautiful. Because we're in Christ. He looks at us as we're in Christ. He sees us through Christ. That's so hard to relate to for me sometimes. Because I look at myself and I know what a wretched sinner I am. And how foolish I can be. And I say, God, how can you see me as you look at Christ? How can you see me? That? He says, because I see you as you are completed. That's how I look at you. I don't look at you like you are, like you look at yourself. I look at you in Christ. I look at you in Christ. You're complete. We say, well, what, what about my sins? <laughs> what about when I disobey? What about when I rebel? Do you see those things? Of course I see those things. But I don't take them into account. I don't mark them up on a ledger against your name. I mark them up against Jesus' name on that cross. Ha, 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 hallelujah. <laughs> that does something inside of me. That does something. It kind of sets me free to know that there's no condemnation to me because I'm in Christ, because I've been clothed with his righteousness. And though I disobey, God is working in my life. He's catching me up in my own life now, to how he sees me in reality. He's working in me. He's making that righteousness more and more and more real to me. So that every day I look more and more like Jesus to me. I already look like Jesus to him. You say, how can that be? It's a miracle. That's how it can be. It's a miracle. I don't know if, if that doesn't turn you on. I don't know what will. <laughs> That's why it's so important to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's why it's so important to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's why it's so important to keep our eyes on Jesus. Not on ourselves. On Jesus. Because when you keep your eyes on Jesus... You see, you begin to see yourself like God sees you. You begin to imitate Jesus. You begin to walk like Jesus. As soon as you get your eyes off of Jesus, who do you get your eyes on? And what do you see? You don't see Jesus, do you? You see, oh, yucko. 
See, all bummed out, man. I just grody, man. I can't come to church. I, you know. <laughs> but when you got your eyes on Jesus, when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the same person God looks at when he looks at you. You gotta believe that. You gotta believe that. You gotta rehearse that. That's gotta be real to you, down to your core. God sees me like he sees Jesus? Yes. Yes, he does. Apart from the law. The single greatest error, the single greatest problem of religion is that it allows a place for the effort of people in making themselves righteous before God. That's the single greatest error, the single greatest problem with religion. That it allows a place for the effort of men in making themselves righteous before God. And if that were true, Jesus died in vain. If you have to earn your way, if I have to earn my way to heaven, if I have any part to play in that, then I might as well prop a ladder up against the cross, climb up, slap Jesus across the face, spit on him, and say, I don't need you. He died in vain. Paul writes in several letters, and I've listed some scriptures for you, and you ought to just look them up. I've written part of the verse for you next to the, the scripture uh, Reference, but you ought to look them up on your own. We're just going to look at them real briefly. Romans 3.28, Paul repeats himself, apart from the law. Romans 4.6, apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, man not justified by observing the law. Galatians 2.21, if you could make yourself righteous by the law, then Christ died in vain. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Those who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Why? Because they can't keep the law. He's already said earlier that it's by the law that we, we see how sinful we are. What an impossible situation, situation we're in. Ephesians chapter, that should be chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Salvation is a gift from God, not of works, so that anyone can boast, Paul says. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Not by anything we've done. Again, in Titus, he repeats himself, Not by righteous works we've done. And then Paul says this great statement in the third chapter of Philippians. He says, To be found in him, he's describing himself. He says, I long to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You see how this truth is over and over and over and over in Paul's letters? He means for all of us to understand it. He goes on and he says, the law and the prophets testified this. This is not something new. The whole Old Testament testified of God's grace and his righteousness. The prophets talked about it. It's all throughout Psalms, the righteousness of God. Indeed, the very law itself and the sacrifices that were instituted and given through Moses pointed to a, a sacrifice and a, 
righteousness beyond man's own ability. Why? Because the sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over and over. If you read some of the prophets, Micah, God says, I don't want your sacrifices. Why? Because when the people offered them, they didn't believe God. They were just going through the motions of this external ritual, thinking that the ritual itself had a means to ameliorate their sin and their guilt. God says, no. He says, I want you to believe me. I want you to put your faith in my word. And then because you believe me, I give you my righteousness. And then do the sacrifices as an expression of your faith. That's how we get baptized. Because it's an expression of our faith. Baptism doesn't change anybody. It doesn't do anything. God does it in a person's heart. God changes that person. And then they come forward, and then they get baptized as an expression of their life and their faith. And then something happens to them. Isn't that exciting? So Paul says that the law and the prophets testified. The whole Old Testament talks about this righteousness from God. Indeed, Abraham himself, in the 15th chapter of Genesis, Moses writes, and Paul repeats it in, in the fourth chapter of Romans, Abraham believed God, and he was declared righteous. He believed God. He took God at his word. And he acted on God's word, and he was declared righteous. That was way before the cross, wasn't it? Do you see how the Old Testament prophesied and talked about a righteousness that would be given by faith? Not of works. Abraham didn't work to earn it. God declared him righteous. And he says this righteousness, this righteousness from God comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who what? Believe. It doesn't come through faith in a vague God. It comes through faith in who? Jesus Christ. Faith in who? Jesus Christ. Turn to the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. I want to, I want to show you something. Astounding. The 8th chapter of John's Gospel, verse 30. Now look what John records in verse 30. Jesus has been teaching and preaching. And John records, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. All right? Look at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, he said, If you hold to my teaching... If you continue in my teaching, if you don't let go, you are really my disciples. Does that speak about perseverance? Yes, it does. You see, there's a false faith and a true faith. A false faith is momentary. There were scads and scads of people that, that John records who believed him, 
who put their faith in him. But it was a momentary faith because scads of them turned away. True faith is lasting. True faith continues. True faith perseveres. comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Not some vague sense of God. You can't just say, well, I, I believe in God. It's got to come through faith in Jesus Christ. It's got to come through faith in Jesus Christ. <coughs> Nobody else. Jesus said what? I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through me. How could he say that? Because he was going to go to the cross and die for everybody. He was going to carry the weight of everybody's sin on his shoulders, in his body. His joints were going to be pulled out of joint. His muscles torn, his hands racked, his feet racked with pain. His back ripped open. Carry our sins. No one else can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one else would pay that price. A death that would have eternal consequences, eternal significance. A death that would satisfy God's requirements for sin for every human being. A death that is sufficient for everyone, efficient for those who believe. For those who put their faith. For those who are continuing in his word. Someone would say, well, you know, all you got to do is believe and that's it. No. It's not just believe and that's it. It's believe with everything you got. It's not just having a passive agreement with the facts about Jesus. It's just not having knowledge of the facts. It's not just having a mental assent to those facts. Oh, yes, I agree. It's those things plus a commitment to him. A commitment to persevere with him to the end. He says in another place, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. God has given us this righteousness. And it's a righteousness that he gives when we put our faith in Jesus. And every single person on this earth wants to be loved and accepted unconditionally. Isn't that true? Every single one of us. We want to believe that there's someone who knows us and understands us and accepts us and can do something about our life. That person is God through Christ. There is nobody else. There is nobody else. And when a person sets their sights on Jesus, when they continue with Jesus, when they keep their eyes on Jesus, then all the problems are going to be taken care of. All the problems are going to be taken care of. Why? Because they're made righteous. Because they're born again. Because they're be given a, do, a new nature. Paul says, Behold, all things have passed away, and all things are new. 
You say, well, you say all things are new, but I still have this stuff in my life. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And as you keep your eyes on Jesus, all these things that are remnants of your flesh are going to begin to just fall away. As soon as you get your eyes off of Jesus, you're going to automatically put your eyes on yourself. And you're going to begin to look at yourself not as God looks at you, as man looks at you. And those insecurities and those inadequacies and those fears and those doubts are going to rise up again to plague you. Back in that eighth chapter of John's Gospel, listen to what he finishes off and he says, And if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you'll be secure. You'll be free. Hold to my teaching, he says. That's the mark of a real disciple. A person who's persevering, who's received God's righteousness by faith, who's put their faith in Jesus, and presses on. Jesus, I don't care what they say, I don't care what they do, I'm not letting go of you. I'm not letting you out of my sight. Let's pray. God, we praise your holy name tonight. We thank you that you have come to our rescue. We thank you that, Lord, that you supply the only answer to our great dilemma. Lord, we know that there are religions upon religions upon religions. There are philosophies upon philosophies upon philosophies. And Lord, we know that each one really tries to answer the great question. Can a man be righteous before God? But Lord, each one offers the solution only in the realm of human merit, human effort. There be one only God that says... I'll do it. I'll come to your rescue. As your great forefather Abraham did, believe me. Put your faith in my word and act on it. And I will give you a righteousness, an everlasting righteousness. And I will heal you. And you'll indeed know the truth. And you'll be set.